Yeah, if you have any questions, please uh, keep them in your head or write them down, and we'll ask the questions at the end of the session. Uh, the next topic is the Uber Life Insurer by Louis Rousseau. Uh, here's Louis here. Uh, Louis is uh, an actuary from Tuckies uh, originally. He lives in Cape Town. Uh, he presented this topic in Cape Town and flew here especially today, so thanks very much, Louis. Um, Louis, did you use Uber when you were in Germany? Today. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Louis uh, started at uh, Gen Re in 2001. He's been there for a long time, done a lot of things, uh, reserving, pricing. He spent some time in uh, Singapore and uh, now moved into research and analytics and hence the, his interest in this topic. So please welcome Louis to the podium. Thank you, everyone. Um, let me just figure out this one. Um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, Uber and what it means for life insurance industry. What, what does it mean for us? What would Uber like, look like if it were a life insurance company? Um, so I'm going to start with that. Um, I wanted to have beers available for this discussion because it's, on, or it's almost 4.30 on a Friday, so it's, it feel, feels a bit uh, offered, but thanks for staying as well. Anyway, so before I get to Uber, I wanted to get to the New York Times. So I'm going to take you on a journey and get back to Uber in the end. Um, in 2014, the New York Times was struggling. They were struggling digitally especially. They were losing digital customers um, to competitors that were upstart competitors were just taking business away from them. They didn't really understand what was happening and they decided to launch a, 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 a report or a committee or a group of people inside the company to, 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 to propose a product solution that would solve their problems. They wanted a digital product that would solve the problem of losing customers on the, on the platform. So this, this group of people um, with some senior input um, wrote a report, the innovation report um, for, from the New York Times. This was supposed to be an internal report, but fortunately for us it got leaked. Um, it's a very interesting read. Um, I suggest that if you, if you get the time, try and read that and just replace uh, media with insurance while you're reading it in your head. Um, it, really, it really rings truth for the insurance industry as well. Anyway, so this, this group of people wrote this report, but they actually changed the ambit of the reports. They said, well, actually, we don't want to develop a product. We want to develop a, a more long-standing solution to this problem that they were facing. So they said, helping the Times adjust to this moment of promise and peril, we concluded, would have greater journalistic and financial impact than virtually any product idea we might have suggested. So they actually changed the ambit and said, we don't want to do a product, we want to change the organization from in. And they kind of identified what was happening at the New York Times. They were being disrupted. Um, and they took, they took sort of the definition of disruption from, from the Innovator's Dilemma, a book by Clayton Christensen. Clayton defines disruption as disruption describes a process whereby a smaller company with fewer resources is able to successfully challenge established incumbent businesses. And this is what the New York Times is facing. Small upside companies are taking away business from them, stopping them from making money digitally. And, and, and this is what they described. Um, so I'm going to go a bit more in depth into this theory of disruption, and, and this is, follows from sort of Clayton Christensen's book. Um, and this describes, this is a chart describing a mar market for a particular product. At the top you have sort of the high-end needs, or, well, on the axis first you have product quality on the, on, the, on the left axis. On the horizontal axis you have time. 
Um, and then you have the market needs. The top, the top end represents the, the high-end market needs. People prefer a higher quality in the higher end. And at the bottom, you have the low-end needs, sort of the, the, the low margin value sort of um, customers in that market. That's what they need to, to, for, for the product. Um, and they need to sort of slowly improve over time. They want better and better products over time. In that space, you have an incumbent that's developed a product. Typically, the current incumbents are at the high end. They're targeting the highest margin business at the high end. Everybody wants those high-value customers, uh, and, and that's where they are. And they develop a product that sort of meets those needs. Um, and they continue to improve those products over time as well. And then the theory goes with the disruptor entering that market is that they, end, they enter the market right at the bottom with a very low quality product. They develop a new innovative technique, a new innovative solution that actually makes the product worse in some senses. It improves the product in other senses, but from the you know, traditional view of the product, the product looks a lot worse. And what they do is they develop that product until they can actually meet, um, they improve that, that idea, that process, until they can meet the low-end needs. But they do so typically at a, at, a, at a higher convenience factor or at a lower cost, or, or some mix of those two. And as soon as they start hitting that low-end need, they start picking up customers. But they don't stand still. They continue to innovate their product and at some point, they start to meet the high-end needs. And this is where they start hurting um, the incumbents. And this is where they start taking away business from the incumbents because their simpler convenience or uh, convenient or cheaper solution is starts, starts disrupting that, that uh, incumbent there. You'll note that the disruptor's product never gets better than the, the, than the, uh, uh, the incumbent's product measured on the original scale. But it does take away business as soon as it meets that sort of minimum need for the, for the typical customer. So that's sort of the theory around it. To give you a couple of examples, um, digital cameras is kind of a, a nice example to think about this. When digital cameras first came out, they were, the images were poor quality, they were blocky, um, you couldn't take pictures at night, generally very difficult, not, not that nice, but people were, started to accept them. Some of the geeks wanted to have an image on their computer, really, really nice. But as the technology improved, that, those images got better and better. And eventually, they were good enough. Most people accepted the, the, the slightly lower quality than the top-end film cameras, but appreciated the convenience. They were never, they were never really driven by the, you know, the quality as such. They, the convenience started to outweigh that. Same thing happened again, unfortunately, for digital cameras, um, in that uh, people started putting low-quality cameras in phones. Initially, the photos were poor quality, couldn't take at night, same, same sort of story, but they generally improved over time. And at some point, they were good enough. They were still not as good as the top-end digital cameras that they were replacing, but most people didn't care about that extra few megapixels. The photos, were, the convenience of having a camera in your phone far outweighed the couple of megapixels of a digital camera. So that kind of describes this process of a low-end disruptor coming in, improving their product, and then when they're good enough, they take away business. Um, and this is how companies go out of business. I mean, Kodak filed for chapter, two, uh, chapter 11 bankruptcy in, in the US in 2012, I think, based on this whole disruptive process. Another example might be desktops versus laptops. Laptops first came out, they low battery life, you know, very unique sort of situation, but they continue to improve. Um, and eventually they were good enough, not as good as the, de the same desktops of the time, but, but the same pattern emerges. And I think they're facing tablets now as well, in, in the same kind of mold. You can't do as much as you can do on a laptop on your tablet, but for most people, 
being able to check email, being to able to browse the internet and being to play a few apps and check your Facebook is all they need uh, in a computing device and a tablet is good enough for that. So why is it so difficult for the incumbents to respond to this? Why is it, why does this disruption actually occur? Because surely an incumbent has all the power and all the market share to actually do something about it. And there's a couple of reasons put forward by Christensen in terms of why this is difficult for them to respond. Um, there's three, three. I'm going to go through them each after this, but um, they are sustaining. Um, the difference between sustaining innovation and disruptive innovation is one part of it. The other one is the pace at what the market need improve, uh, the pace at which the markets need in terms of product quality changes is usually slower than the pace at which technology improves. So that the, 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 the incumbent typically outpaces the, the market need. I'll get to that now as well. And then um, disruptive technology often looks like a bad investment at the start, and, and that makes it difficult for incumbents to respond. So I'll get to that. So this is the first one. What's the difference between uh, sustaining uh, technological innovation and disruptive technology innovation. Sustaining innovation is what incumbents are good at. This is the bit where you continually improve your product. For digital cameras it was, I have a 3 megapixel camera, I have a 5 megapixel camera, I have a 10 megapixel camera. That is sustaining um, innovation, just making the numbers bigger, making the product slightly better, adding more bells and whistles. Disruptive innovation is, well let's put a small little camera in a phone doesn't make sense, right? It at, at that moment, it didn't make sense. Why would you have a camera on your phone? Think about 10 years, 20 years back. Nobody would have thought about that. And then it starts to make sense and the in in innovation happens. And, and, and those guys also then do sustaining technolog technological innovation to improve their product and then, uh, and then they become good enough. So that's kind of the difference there. So the, the incumbents are usually good at the sustaining part, not the disruptive part. Um, and then the pace at which the market, need market needs develop uh, is typically overshot by the pace of t sustaining technological innovation. So the incumbent co continues to improve their product to a point that they actually develop a product that's far better than most people would actually need. So when the 14 megapixel digital cameras came out, that didn't actually make a difference in anybody, anybody's lives. It was way too much for most people to, to care about. Uh, a six, a six, a six megapixel camera was good enough. Nobody, not everybody, expanded their photos to poster size, and and, and that's what why how the digital cameras overshot the need of their existing customer base. Same is probably happening with insurance, and if you think about critical illness policies, all those bells and whistles that we continue to add to those products, I suspect at some point we we probably already are overshooting the need of most people in terms of all those bells and whistles. That's um, sustaining innovation. So that makes it easier for the, for the, for the low-end disruptor to come. Once they meet the basic need, their other features far outweigh uh, the features that we've developed, the, the incumbent has developed, uh, and that makes it easy for people to switch because um, they don't care for all the extra bells and whistles. They actually want a product that's simpler, cheaper, more convenient. So that's kind of what happens there. So those are the two reasons. The third one is um, disruptive technologies often looks like a poor investment especially at the start. Disruptive technology often is useful uh, and it looks it's often useful in low end, the low end of the market, which means the, market, the margins are typically low, lower. So as an investment, it looks poorer. Um, often the first successful commercialization of disruptive technology is in emerging or insignificant markets. So it might be in a, 
some corner of Africa, it might be some corner of Asia, some new technology gets developed and it doesn't look great at the start and nobody wants to invest in it because the market size looks, looks um, poor. And then often companies that are incumbents go and ask the existing customers, you know, we've got this new technology, we're not sure what to do with it. Um, and they ask, you know, would you be able to use this product? And often the existing customers are not the right customers to ask because they don't need it. They're used to the, the top end products. They don't want some weird low end product in there. And that's the, that, all these factors contribute to the incumbents not investing in disruptive technology um, because of that. So those are kind of the three reasons Christensen mentions. Now, with that sort of little bit of theory behind us, we can actually get to Uber. Now, I'm from Cape Town, so Uber moves Cape Town, but I've, I hear it moves Joburg as well, and I often use it well here. Um, so we've seen Uber's meteoric rise. They are all over the world. I hear they just opened up in Kenya. I think Craig mentioned that. Um, so they're really taking over the world. It's a massive company. Their valuation reflects it. This is a valuation based on people buying into this company. Um, I think this is slightly outdated, but I think it might have come off. But the size of Uber is being, is, is an, Uber's market value is comparable to large motor manufacturers in the US now. That is a massive valuation for a company that is actually quite small. What does Christensen say on Uber? He actually posted, posted a blog on Uber in terms of um, people saying Uber is a disruptor. According to him, Uber is not really a disruptor in his definition, in his original definition, because they didn't start at the low end. Immediately when they came out, their product was better than most taxi services because it was more convenient, the drivers were polite, um, you know, the service was very, very good compared to taxis, and the cars were brand new, all that sort of thing. And they also didn't target the low end customers, they targeted the existing customers first. They targeted the taxi riders first. So he, he said it's not disruptive innovation as he defined it in his book. But I'd like to think that maybe got it a little bit wrong, especially if you look at this slide. Can I go back? I can go back. Um, is Uber disrupting the business of taxis or is Uber disrupting the business of owning a car? That's kind of, if you think about it like that, it actually becomes a low-end disruptor because it's, it's less convenient than owning your own car but there's significant other advantages to having to using Uber compared to owning a car. Myself, I'm actually considering, still have to convince the wife of, of dropping one car in the household. So that, that's, that's actually, actually Uber's business plan. They're investing in smart self-driverless cars. They're investing in all sorts of technology that will get them there to actually reducing car sales. And that's also why this chart, this chart has uh, the motor manufacturers there on comparable. So how's Uber doing this? Oh, sorry, I want to cover this one. Big Bang disruption is also another model to consider. Um, it's kind of a special form of disruption where somebody moves into an industry, somebody with ex exceptional digital uh, sort of prowess moves into a new industry and completely disrupts that industry. Um, typically, they have a product that they, they get in there that has some other benefits, but completely disrupts the existing guys because it is better than the existing product immediately and it is typically free or low cost or something like that. Um, Google Maps is a perfect example of that. Google Maps completely destroyed the businesses of TomTom Tom and Garmin. They're both now looking at wellness devices and that sort of thing as opposed to making uh, GPS devices because all overnight, practically, 
everybody had a GPS map application on their phone for free compared to paying a couple of thousand rand for something that you put in your car and had to carry around. So that's a kind of example of big bang disruption. Um, but Uber is, a, is another example. Uber is the is an example of the battle for the customer interface. I love this quote, and, and I'm going to share it with you now. Uber, the world's largest taxi company, owns no vehicles. Facebook, the world's most popular media owner, creates no content. Alibaba, the most valuable retailer, has no inventory. And Airbnb, the world's largest accommodation provider, owns no real estate. Something, something interesting is happening. And this is, this is kind of what we, what we see with Uber. Uber has some elements of disruption, but they also have this element of not owning any cars. And Uber sits, I mean, these companies that are emerging, and this includes companies like Facebook and Google and all the sorts of companies, sits on very large supply chains of, of products. If you think about Uber, there's the car makers. There's the owners of cars that, that Uber drivers drive, and then there's the drivers. There's thousands of these people, but right at the top, there sits about 6,700 Uber employees that has this whole industry sort of, you know, captured in a, in a way, and, that, and that's what the power of this, this sort of distribution disruption is all about. Um, if you think the, the automotive industry in the U.S. is measured at, as, what, four million people working in that automotive industry? Uber has literally 6,700 employees, which, you know, if you think about the impact Uber is having, it's quite disproportionate to its size. So this thin layer is sitting between the customer and the supply chain of products and services, and it's completely changing the way that product is provided and serviced. And, and that's, that's what's really interesting about these companies that are emerging. Airbnb is a very similar shape. Bar supply of houses and buildings and accommodation, just getting the customer and the product together as Provin also mentioned, Uber is just providing that connect between the customer and the, and the product or the service. And what does is, what is the Harvard Business Review say about insurance, and specifically in this context of disruption, big bang disruption, all these sorts of disruptions? I'm going to read the quote on the right. The industry's most susceptible disruptions are those selling information-based services that can be delivered digitally. And a perfect example is the insurance industry. This is what you know really shakes my bones a little bit. Um, we, are, we, we are facing disruption and, uh, you know, business strategy organizations say we are the perfect example of an industry that's susceptible to this sort of disruption. So this is, what, this is what, uh, why I'm having this talk with you today. So um, the rest of the talk, I'm just going to go through some examples of companies that are starting out just to give you an idea of what kind of things people are doing. Um, and I'll just show you a couple of slides around that. The first one is actually not a startup as much as, as having already quite a significant business in the UK. Um, it's compare, comparethemarket.com. A lot of you might have seen them already, um, or compare the meerkat is the other name, <laughs> if you want. Their mascot is a meerkat, which they put on everything. And if you buy a product through them, you get a meerkat in the in the in the in the in the post. Um, you can collect the whole family. I see now you can collect the superhero set. I go to uh, offices in the UK and I see on some, some people's desk, four or five of these meerkats, which they've now dutifully collected and they dress them up and all sorts of things. So they're really doing well in terms of their brand. They're really doing well in terms of interaction with the customer and their brand is gaining a lot of traction in that market. When you go to uh, meerkat, you type in your details and you get life insurance quotes. So these guys are not selling life insurance, they, they're aggregating the prices. They're ag aggregating insurance quotes for you and giving you the cheapest price. 
And this is what the insurance brands look like on that. You can see there's a little insurance brand over there, there's one there, and it's just brand and price and a few features. Completely commoditized. So this company is stepping between the customer and the insurance company and completely starting to own that space and really commoditizing the, the insurance industry uh, in, in the UK. And there's a couple of them in the UK as well. This is just one example. So that's kind of a more established example. The rest are a bit more uh, startup examples that, that, that I've seen. Um, and these are just examples from sort of all financial services. This is one, again, focused on distribution, not, not trying to sell insurance, uh, not trying to uh, insure people carrying risk. They offer fast uh, little websites and, 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 um, and apps that allow any, any agent to, to sell a niche product quickly and conveniently. So if you want to sell pet insurance, you're a guy who sells homeowner insurance. You want to sell pet insurance on the side. You don't want to deal with all the hassles. They provide you a little app and a site and everything that you can just go and get going uh, quickly and conveniently. Again, on the distribution side. Simple uh, disability insurance, another startup. Their views are to try and use banking as an angle on disability. They try, they, they want to partner with the banks, different banks, and sell disability insurance simply and quickly and conveniently to their customers. I'm not sure exactly how they're going to do it, but again, they're not, they're not carrying the risk. They want to actually get involved with, with distribution and using data, of course. Um, FitSense is a, is a kind of discovery, vitality kind of idea, looking at wellness. So there's a couple of wellness startups that are up, out there. This is just one of those examples. Um, they want to aggregate all your, they want to aggregate your, um, your uh, device wellness information, your runs, your exercises, all those sort of things, and deliver that to insurance company clients, and then act as an interface between the two. Again, earning that space between the customer and the insurance company, but not carrying any risk. So that, that you'll see, you see this theme emerging a lot. Simple insurance, another sort of distribution sales process. Um, this is focused on point of sale systems. So while you're in the shop, you bought a new computer or a new laptop or a new phone or a camera. At the point of sale, as you're paying for the item on the till, there comes up a few questions on the risks, your risks, and you get insurance for that product as you leave the store, trying to make it very easy and convenient to get insurance for specific products. Also targeting, targeting um, sort of uh, uh, millennial type behavior, you know, immediate sale, immediate gratification, not you know, thinking about it too much and, and all that sort of stuff, making it very simple. My Future Now talks a bit about legacy, um, and it also talks about yeah, savings as well. So this is talking to this closed book. What they want to do is, as a UK company, they, will, they collect your information and they go find all possible um, preservation funds or RAs that you have in the market that you might not be aware of or you've lost track of, and they aggregate all that information for you. They show that, show that information for you and present it in a nice interface. You can go look at it. Um, and that they all do for free. So that's finding money for you for free, if you, if you, if you, if you, uh, if you like the message. Um, but then they offer you um, different products to buy. So now you can go buy a low-cost pension, uh, uh, you know, maybe an index tracker or something like that, so, you know, that sort of thing. So they're trying to attack companies' legacy books in a, in a way, if you think about that. Um, and it's also kind of offering a valuable service for free, but then making money out of the sales or out of that. So that's quite an interesting one there for me. Another one having that sort of 
uh, 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 approaches Broly. They also have a little umbrella as they sort of... Uh, Thing. So I think Santa might have, few, might have a few issues here. Um, what they're going to do is they're going to aggregate all your short-term policies for you. You tell them which, what policies you have, they put them all together in a dashboard for you, and again, offer, offer products that, that might better fit your needs or might better fit, the, better fit their needs, who knows. <laughs> but again, it's distribution. It's not actually insur uh, insurance, and it's, um, again, some form of aggregation. So they're actually going to just commoditize insurance as well. Another one I like a lot is Policy Genius. Policy Genius has a whole financial advice element to it. You go in there, I did the, you can go there, you can go do the whole uh, uh, process. It's a US-based company. Just make up a US postcode and fill it in. You can go through that process and they basically give you financial advice. They tell you what, cover, what life cover do you have? What health cover do you have? What, do you have cover for your pet? Do you have home insurance? They ask you all, the, all those questions and they offer a whole dashboard for you afterwards to say, I think we think you should focus on this, that, and that. This, is, this you are fine with. Um, go find out what the conditions are on your policy. Make sure your health coverage is comprehensive. All sorts of advice like that. And it, and it makes sense. And it's, you know, it's scalable and it's easy. And then if you want to, you can just click, click on something and, they, and they'll give you a bunch of quotes on that as well. So it's, it's very convenient, actually. Oscar has done the same for health insurance uh, in the U.S. again. Um, uh, this company has gained a pretty big valuation. I think it's valued at a billion dollars already. Again, aggregating health insurance solutions, but offering claims, and claims assistance as well, offering doctors on call, offering SMS or WhatsApp your doctor trying, doctor trying to find where to go, what you need to do with your medical condition. So it's doing the whole advice, but... The, the, the comparison bit, as well as some claim support and, and ongoing support for people with health insurance. Quite a nice little website. Trove, is it, it's, no, it's not cut off there. Trove is another one. I think they're going to launch in Australia soon. Um, the idea is for on-demand insurance. So this is especially targeting those sort of millennial mindset. You know, I just need a bit of cover. I don't have a lot of money. I need it now just for two weeks. Etc. So the idea is you're going on holiday, you're carrying your camera with you, your expensive digital camera perhaps, and, um, and you, you just turn on insurance for that camera for those two weeks, and when you get back, you turn it off. Little switches on your phone, you turn on cover for the products as you need it, when you need it. So the idea is to be sort of on-demand insurance and, and that sort of a thing. Quite an interesting idea. I'm, I'm worried about fraud for them. I'm not sure how they're going to control fraud. Berkshire Hathaway also has one. This is sort of, uh, part, uh, we, we're, we're part of Berkshire Hathaway. Um, they have an air travel one, which is a similar idea, sort of on your mobile, quick, quick insurance um, for, for travel insurance. One interesting part of theirs is that they automatically pay out if your flight is delayed. So they check online which flights are delayed and they automatically pay out to you. So you don't even have to claim for this one. Another sort of a quick and a nice on-demand example. I quite like Bought by Many. This is a UK example. What they're doing is they're looking at more socializing the distribution of insurance, so making it a bit more sociable. Um, so what you do is they, they want to get together um, uh, groups of people that are similar and pre present a unique risk to the insurance industry, both life, health, and, and short-term. Uh, in the short term, the classic example is the Labradors, Labrador owners. They, they got together a group of Labrador owners and they went to pet insurance companies and said, well, Labradors are the most peaceful animals. They don't, uh, they're not aggressive. They don't hurt themselves. Low medical bills, easily treated. And they got a discount from insurance company for their group of Labrador owners. 
And these Labrador owners often also find other Labrador owners and they socially dispute it and get a better deal. So there's examples here, um, uh, uh, sort of health insurance or startups, probably because they're younger on average, they, they should be able to get a better deal. Um, health insurance for gym goers, uh, uh, we should be familiar with that. Those kind of ideas is what they're doing. Bringing together people, getting them to help with the distribution, and then once the group is big enough, trying to sell into them. Um, taking that social aspect a little bit further is Guevara. Um, old insurance is rubbish. Use Guevara. It's kind of a disruptive um, idea there, definitely. Um, so what they do is they actually have peer-to-peer -peer insurance, most, mostly on the short term. The idea is that you and a group of people, this is the Brighter Swimmers Club, uh, Sea Swimmers Club, group of people that swim in the sea regularly, they, they group together and they share essentially each other's no-claim discounts. If the group has low-claim experience, everybody gets money back or gets money for the next year's premiums. Um, if they have bad experience, they lose that. So it's kind of the idea of to sort of self-underwrite a group and to keep that group good um, in a social way. So kind of managing insurance risk in that way um, is, is their idea. So there's a lot of ideas around that. Spixi is another one, um, just focusing on a different kind of interface to dealing with, with insurance companies, focusing on mobile. Their idea is to have a conversational interface to, to, um, to insurance uh, and to sales in general. Um, their idea is, um, and this is a trend that's sort of emerging at the moment, is around conversational interfaces. People are using WhatsApp more than ever. People are not installing apps on their phones. They're not going to the websites. They're on WhatsApp. Facebook Messenger, all these chat platforms, um, and this is a way to actually have move that whole web app uh, experience into the chat environment to allow people to chat. I think this sort of technology has great, great potential in South Africa and especially the rest of Africa where the smartphone penetration is a lot lower and where the data is not available for these smartphone apps, where an SMS or a USSD-based conversation might be might be a nice opportunity to look at um, a sales process around that. Obviously, all of these disruptions are starting off relatively simple. You'll see them in niche insurance markets, travel, pet. Um, this one is a travel example. A lot of those kind of examples. So it doesn't look like anything real. It doesn't look like anything high margin. But remember we said these technologies start in low-end low -end margins. Um, so I'll, I'm sort of going with that. So this is just to summarize those slides, some of the technology and trends in those slides. Data analytics, of course, in all these businesses play a large role. We, 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 it's, it's important in that. Mobile is, of course, also. Um, behavioral science and the way they ask their questions and the way they guide people to, through the sales process to make it simpler, easier, and, and, and make the right choices a lot easier. Um, AI, conversational interfaces, sharing economy, peer-to-peer, -peer, getting people to insure each other, get that sort of original thoughts of insurance going again. Mobile money, I think, will also play a role. Um, and then the generational aspect, trying to target millennials who have a different way of dealing with, 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 with products and, and, and services um, than ever before. And the, you know, in the developed world, millennials is a big problem because they're not buying insurance at the same rate that, that, that people used to buy insurance in those markets and they're really struggling to target them. So these kind of developments is all geared around targeting those people. So that's kind of the technology and trends behind it. Um, now let's say, let's look at the other side of the fence again, responding to disruption. What does Christensen say about responding to disruption? He says there's sort of five key things um, that, he, that he mentions in his book. However, um, he says it's not 
it's, it's still an art, it's not a science. There's still a lot of unknowns about how to respond to disruption. Because some companies do these things and don't, don't get it right. First one is um, need resources to respond. So you, if you're a large business and you have disruptive elements attacking that business, it often makes sense to move to create a new unit that has its own resources, that is not competing with your existing business um, to, 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 to tackle that threat. So that those people are, um, don't compete with your existing business, essentially. Um, it's also good to respond to, to the market size. Um, um, don't use a large organization to tackle a small market disruption. Start with a small organization to tackle that because they respond quicker and better to those kind of disruptions. The, the flip side of that, though, is what he also says is you can't assess the size of a new market. If the market doesn't exist, you can't really assess the size. So it's, you must really think about what the, the potential market size is for these things. And if all your metrics in your business is around strict market size requirements, it often makes, uh, it, makes it very difficult to invest in, 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 these, in these disruptive um, technologies or, or forces. Um, and then understand your organizational weaknesses. That's obviously key. And then... And, realize, and then the last one is realize when you're oversatisfying the needs of your market. And this is talking to having you know, a product that's well in advance of what any realistic user actually needs. And, and that means that you possibly there's a potential for disruption. Because as soon as a disruptive technology becomes good enough for most of your market, they'll move to, to this new disruptive technology because of other advantages. They don't value, your customers don't value that over delivery of, 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 um, of needs. In, in your market. So that's a sort of questions around that. So to sort of close, I want to talk to you again about New York Times to bring the, the bring bring the loop back. The New York Times, you know, had this report, a lot of recommendations in there, how to sort of become a digital first organization, how to, um, you know, make sure that they don't uh, uh, that internally they're not a slave to the, the existing business, the print business, to make sure that digital gets the right prioritization in the business. And they kind of, and, and there's a couple of follow-up articles on this, um, a lot of people saying they actually did everything in the report and they did reasonably well. Um, so and, and, and the results of that is also that people say that they are gaining digital customers, they've sort of turned the tide. But I think for them, the battle is not won yet. I think uh, the war is not won yet. They won a, won a battle, but I think there's still an ongoing war in terms of news uh, distribution, media distribution online, which they still, they still are in, in. So good news for them, but I think they still have a long road ahead of them. What does it mean for insurance companies? I think, I think when you look at the New York Times, it is a big organization like many insurance companies. And big organizations find it very difficult to respond to these kind of things. And I think that is a challenge as an insurance industry that we face um, in terms of how we, or how we will respond to this kind of disruption. Um, and now, finally, I can get back to Uber Life, the, the mythical company that I, that I hope to see soon. Um, I, think, I think I'm just going to take one slide to describe what I think Uber Life will look like. Um, I'm not sure how it will turn out, but I hope to, to imagine that it'll be an African company. It'll start out somewhere in Africa, uh, probably South Africa or, 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 or one, one of the Southern African countries, um, with some new clever technology that allows people to sell business easily and more conveniently to low-end markets people in across Africa. It'll probably be based on something on a mobile phone, not a smartphone, probably a feature phone. So it'll probably run on SMS or USSD or some, some technology like that. It will make it very easy to distribute insurance. 
Um, they will probably start using social aspects to make sure that the to ease the distribution of that product. So people tell their friends about their products, something of that nature, because the distribution agency forces aren't really there. There's not really people to do this distribution. They'll probably also use social aspects to maybe manage the claims. Data analytics will be huge. That will be very important to underwrite and to target customers effectively. From there, I hope to see it grow, and, and it suddenly they will be good enough for uh, a high advice product. Suddenly this model will work for high advice products. It will be good enough, and, and I hope to see it take over the world, and then they'll come with the smartphone apps and the online sales and the telephone sales and all that sort of thing. But I think, I'd like to think this is where Uber Life will start. Um, one thing, it might be an insurance company, might also not be an insurance company that develops this, this product. Um, uh, this company may or may not have any risk on its books as well, so that's, that's what's going to be different about it. So maybe with the, the largest insurance company in the future will carry no risk. That's it for me. Okay, we've still got uh, 20 minutes or so for questions. We finished a little bit early. So I'm going to open it to the floor. Um, if you've got questions for Pravin or Louis, um, you can fire away. Any questions? Thank you. I have a question for Pravin. And, and, and the question is around this theme. Does the statistics matter at all? So you mentioned that uh, in, in, in your talk that uh, probably the users do not need to know the mathematics or the, or the statistics behind it. You gave a, 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 an example there. And you said that the consultants should be doing that. Now my question is, are the consultants doing that? Is there a body of sort of statistical evidence showing that the results coming out of this are, are solid? And to give, to give an example of this, you mentioned the issue of what you observe from tweets. For example, you, you do some analysis of this on your, on your own clients. How would you adjust for the bias, for example, for the in my presumption, probably 99.99% of your clients who do not tweet. How do you then make sure that the results that you get are statistically robust? I was hoping not to get a question like that on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> Um, so so let, let's start with the first one in terms of the use of consultants. So the first thing is that there's too many techniques for us to learn all. And I would say start with the business problem and then look for people in the market because you'd be surprised when you look how many there are. Um, particularly in big data, there's quite a few small shops of um, actuaries, engineers, statisticians out there who have built boutique, in, boutique practices in South Africa doing this type of service. Um, get them in to come and just do a POC. You'll find the cost is, is not prohibitive and you can quickly, when I say quickly, assuming you've got the data ready, probably in, in a month try something and see if, it, if it's valuable or not. And for a large organization, hiring a consultant for a month, um, even if it's a technical consultant, is not a prohibitive cost. And you're not looking there for the, the full statistical answer. You're looking there to say, does, do you then believe that this path of actually bringing this technique into the organization has value. Um, the alternative is to find someone in your organization who has the skill, and often you'll be surprised at how many um, people have hobbies around learning these things. Um, go figure. And Especially actuaries. Yes. <laughs> um, 
Or alternatively, you could actually find someone in your team, young, bright, bright youngsters, and, and send them to university or an online course to learn this. But you'll find that's actually much longer and more expensive. So the only reason I say use consultants for it upfront, it's purely to prove that the technique is worth investing in. Um, I think for me that's important. In terms of the statistical robustness, well, you the actuary, you figure out if it works or not. And, and this for me is actually very important. Um, and this is why I'd like to see more actuaries getting involved. As the tools get easier and easier to use, they actually get easier and easier to abuse. Um, I've got, I mean, lots of friends who consult around these types of things. And some of them are absolutely brilliant, but I have to be honest, some of them I have to wonder. Um, it's amazing what you can sell with pretty PowerPoint. Um, so for me, the reason, one of the reasons I'd like to see more actuaries and, and more people with an actuarial bent, even if they aren't proper actuaries um, or formal actuaries getting involved, is to make sure that these tools are not abused. Um, also, coming back to statistical propensity, for a lot of things, you don't need to go to 99.99. Um, it's very seldom in my life that I deal with a capital number. What I'm actually interested in is if I'm going to do a campaign, how do I improve the return on investment on the next campaign we run, and how do I reduce spam so I don't in irritate customers and don't send them to customers who get irritated by it. And that you can actually measure to the nearest ballpark very easily. So for me, I think you yeah, you, you don't. You, you need to use whatever technique you use responsibly, um, and and that's why I'd like to see more actuaries getting involved. Okay, thanks, Bruin. Any more questions for Previn or Louis? There's one in the back there. Uh, thanks for your presentation. Um, just how relevant. Are these uh, big data techniques for startup firms or small firms? And in experience, what has there been a lot of use by these small firms? I think I think I think both of us can answer this. Um, I think data smaller firms are have no legacy systems, which means they probably have less legacy data, but they are better placed to use whatever data they have. That, that's, that's my sense of, of smaller firms. They're better placed to use their data effectively and quickly because they don't have to deal with merging 70 systems into one central customer view. They only have one customer view and, and, and that makes them very focused and very um, focused on especially their initial, their area where they are focused. If I can add to that, for those of you who are entrepreneurial, it's actually a great cottage industry to get into. Um, so I have a number of friends who run either work for themselves or work in, in three-man, four-man teams um, where they do a lot of big data modeling, develop products, and, and then sell them to large corporates. So big data, and I try to stay away from the definition of big data, talks to big volumes of data, but it also talks to the big speed of processing data. And a number of the techniques that you can learn from big data is around processing data. So for those of you who do complex capital calculations, etc. Um, you can actually build a practice around building those models and selling those models quite easily. Um, and you don't need expensive computers to do it. The nice thing about cloud is you can actually build these things online and sell them online phenomenally cheaply. Um, I've got a friend who's running a POC around a, a tool that analyzes large amounts of data for, for corporates. Um, and we're currently able to analyze, I think, 
over 100 gigs in under a minute. Um, and the cost of that is under $100. So the nice thing about big data is it's actually a great equalizer. Anyone else? Right, okay. Uh, thanks very much again to the speakers. Uh, maybe we can give them another hand. Okay, uh, just a few more things. Uh, we need to, first of all, thank all of you for, for coming, for supporting the LAC seminar. I think the turnout was very good, topics were very good, and was uh, very successful. So I'm sure you'll agree with me. Um, Next, I'd like to extend thanks on behalf of, of uh, LAC and everyone else and all of you to ASA for the organizing and, and LAC was involved as well. Thanks for the organizing and, and the logistics. Um, there were some sponsors, Milliman, Sunlum and Sapiens. Thank you, uh, Sapiens, is it? Sapiens. Thanks very much for your support and for the gifts as well. Uh, last but not least, uh, we couldn't have done the seminar without uh, Nikki Patchett. Um, she's been involved in a lot of the seminars over the years. So we've, where's Nikki? I saw it just now. Uh, Nikki, we've got a small gift for you if you can come forward and please give her a hand. Okay, just a few more items. Uh, if you want to see the presentations, um, they will be available electronically on the ASA website in two weeks' time. So if you have a look in two weeks, you should find them there. Uh, we will be sending out uh, feedback surveys. I think we get them every year. So if you can please respond to those um, so we can look to improve the seminars going forward. Maybe we'll give them to Previn and Louis to, to analyze the data as well and see if we can improve it even more. Um, there's uh, one last thing. Stationery that you received that's on your desk, if you don't want it, please leave it behind and it'll be collected and given to a good cause. Um, okay, well, that session's over. See you all again next year. Thank you.